three emphasis. Now, you might, just some background. I don't know how much Pastor Harrison explained this. So last year, around this time, around May, in fact, we're having our next elders retreat uh, coming up this May on the 21st. So if you want to pray for us for that. And we're trying to look up what's going on for next year. And so last year, we decided, you know, we're not a huge church. We can't do everything, but we need to lay before the congregation opportunities to catch God's vision. Now, what does God want us to do? And so we looked at some different ministry opportunities. Uh, the passage that we took it from was from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me just read that to you right now. It says, uh, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so what we've been doing as a church is we've been looking at issues that need to be addressed from scripture and one of them had to do with human trafficking. And I think we had Samantha leading on that one and we thank Samantha for all of her hard work and her communication for that. And as we transition to uh, the disabilities ministry, uh, both pastors had a really heart for that, Pastor Harrison and Pastor Annie, and they sort of took over the leadership of that. Um, they couldn't help themselves. And uh, this, now we're moving into this emphasis called orphan care. And we're gonna be spending some time talking about orphans. So next week, Please don't miss next week. We have a, a pastor, a local pastor. His name is Dave Carlson. He started or helped start a ministry called Foster the Bay. And we have some people connected with that in our church. In fact, Marcus, who's leading this particular ministry emphasis. Is Marcus here today? Where's Marcus? There he is back there. He's going to give testimony in two weeks with Pastor Harrison, who's going to be starting a sermon series on orphan care and adoption. And for us as Christians, we know a lot about adoption, right? Being adopted into the kingdom of God. So what I want to do is just challenge you to sit back in the next couple months and let God speak to you, you know? Obviously, you're not going to be involved in every ministry that's out there. You're a finite being. You have so much time. But God's going to speak to you on something. And we're hoping that he speaks clearly. And maybe he's already spoken to you on something. You've already been moved into the ministry. And maybe, you know, just not yet. And maybe this is going to be where God's going to move you into really giving yourself over to something. And not just for a quarter, you know. I think we got into a bad routine at CBCSJ where everything was done in a quarter. You know, you serve for a quarter, then you were done. You serve for a quarter, then you were done. We're looking for something that's going to transform your heart from the inside out and give you your life's calling as a minister. And we want all of you to be raised up. As pastors, our job is to equip you and to equip, empower you to be that minister God wants you to be. So we're hoping that maybe this might be something for you. Um, so be praying for that next week. Again, it's a little bit different. We're going to meet in here for the first hour. We're not having Sunday school. We're coming straight here. We're doing a joint service with the Chinese congregation as well. And Pastor Dave will do some teaching. He'll share his testimony. And then we'll join into worship together with him doing the, giving the sermon. So please don't miss it. And if you do, I think it's recorded. So you can catch that. But yeah, if you can be here, that would be great. All right. Today, I wanted to talk about receiving Jesus. And I wanted to look at the passage that uh, Anthony picked up last uh, Friday, actually. He led our, our prayer time with that in our youth group. I thought, huh, I wonder if that's a sign. Anyways, um, we want to turn to Matthew chapter 18. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn your Bibles. And we're just looking at the first five verses. I was ambitious. I was going to try to get all the way to seven, but there's just not enough time. Look at that clock. I hate that clock. I wish we could just get rid of that clock. No, my sermons are so much better when I have no time restraints. I don't skip over any of the transitions, any of the illustrations. But anyways, um, 
Let's go ahead and pray and ask God to really help us to hear what he's trying to say and to set ourselves up for months of hearing from God and discerning his voice in our life. Let's pray for that. Father God, we are so thankful that you speak to us in song, in word, in preaching, in prayer, and just the fellowship of the saints. And we, we come here this morning, Lord, looking for that voice, looking for your spirit to rise up and highlight something that's a calling for us. It's something that you have specifically planned for us individually. And Lord, so I just pray right now that this would open up a door of thinking, a door of availability to you so that we can be a people that are anxious to obey, anxious to move with you, anxious to hear your voice and jump in with both feet. So bless our time and bless that, uh, that speech in Jesus' name, amen. So in Matthew chapter 18, I basically want to pull out three things and this idea of receiving Jesus because you know when you receive Christ, it's not like a one and done thing. You receive him every day. You receive him every moment of every day sometimes, right? You're constantly having revelation come upon you as you read the word of God, apply it to your life and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you through your obedience. Round one's over. Um, <laughs> it's no problem. But it's the idea that, you know, when you look at Abraham, you look at Moses, these guys were extremely old in their walk with God and the things that God revealed to them century, or not century, but decade after decade, um, year after year was extraordinary. And that's how they grew in their faith. But you and I, we have something they didn't. We have the complete revelation of God. We don't have to wait for God to speak again. He's already spoken so much. And all we need to do is yield to what he's already said, and we get to find Christ in these words. So three things I wanted to point out in this passage about how Christ, receiving Christ, uh, comes down to receiving Jesus is replacing our greatness with his. Very difficult thing, easy to say, very hard to do. Secondly, receiving Jesus means becoming dependent on God, like a child is dependent on their parents. And the whole life we're trying to grow up, right? We're trying to acquire some sort of independence away from our family and have our job and stand on our own feet. But the idea of coming back to dependence, coming back to that childlike relationship with God seems difficult for us. And then thirdly, receiving Jesus includes receiving children. Kind of a defining point, actually, a very hard line. But when we look at that in its context, it does make sense that we would be anxious to receive children having been received by Christ. So let's go ahead and read the passage. This is Matthew chapter 18. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. And to uh, honor our long standing tradition, no pun intended, stand up, please, for the reading of Scripture. This is verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You may be seated. May God add to the blessing of his word. Now, this is an interesting story because when you compare it with the other gospels, so you look at Mark's version and you look at Luke's version, 
Matthew's not telling the whole story here, and it kind of makes you wonder what part he played. Because when it says they came to Jesus with a question, that's not exactly how it went down. Jesus actually started the questioning by saying, what were you talking about on the road to Capernaum? So the disciples uh, were debating with each other about what position of honor they were going to hold in this new kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about. Who's going to be the chancellor of that and the general of that and sit in this seat of high position? And as Jesus questioned them, they got a little bit embarrassed. But Jesus, knowing what they were talking about, brought in this child illustration, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But the term kingdom, they got that. There's going to be this kingdom. And they were actually vying for position in that. If you think about the apostles, how would that discussion might have gone? You know, I was looking at Matthew Henry, and he had an interesting commentary on this. Because if you look at the apostles, they each had different gifts to offer, right? Like Peter, he was always the main spokesman, most outspoken. He'd already been given the keys of the kingdom earlier in the, in the book of Matthew, right? So he had some sort of clout of which to stand on. You have Judas, who, you know, hadn't betrayed anybody yet, and he was in charge of the money. I'm sure he was thinking, I'm going to be the treasurer, right? I've got that position. I'm already doing a great job with that. We have Simon and Jude, who are actually blood relatives of Jesus. You know, they had the hope of um, occupying the position of prince by blood, which is kind of interesting. Then you also have John. Now, he's an interesting character. Seems to be, at least according to him, Jesus' favorite, and uh, he had clout, you know. He was able to get into the chief priest's garden when Jesus was captured and to have conversations with officials. So maybe he would be a great foreign affairs person, right? Then you have this guy named Andrew, who was the first called, by the way. Why shouldn't he be the first among his peers in positions being passed out? Now, what do we want to notice here when you get into what they were actually talking about? They weren't talking about, what must I do? How must I surrender? How should I be changed? What activity or message must I understand to acquire this position of leadership or influence? They were basing their assessment of their worthiness on what they'd already done. Basing their future position or state of being on what they've already done. And you have to imagine this is late in their time with Jesus. They had already seen and done so much with Christ. You have to imagine what goes through the teacher's head at this moment when he's listening to his apostles debating about which of them are the greatest, which of them deserves the highest position of honor. He must be thinking to himself, are they ever going to get this? Are they ever going to understand? I mean, anyone who teaches for a living uh, that you know what I'm talking about. Because, you know, you, you, you try, you think of so many different ways of getting the message across, so many different illustrations, so many different ways of preaching it and teaching it and reinforcing it. And still, people come off with this false understanding of what it is you're trying to communicate. Christ wanted them to find their reality in him. He came personally to establish a personal relationship with them. And somehow they were pushing it away. They were still measuring themselves by worldly standards still valuing their accomplishments over the accomplishments of Christ, and still counting on their reputation to make it in the world rather than trusting in their relationship with Jesus to make it in life. Probably very disheartening for Christ, but he doesn't give up. He proceeds. This reminded me of Freed this year. We, we had our annual youth retreat for a winter retreat, 
And, um, you know, there's always good sharing that takes place. And it was all in all very positive. Uh, I got lots of nice letters from parents who were saying, oh, thank the staff for me. Uh, the kid's doing great now. Appreciate the, the conversations that you guys have with them and stuff. But as a youth pastor, you come away going, oh, yeah. They're still worried about the same things they were worried about when they were in junior high. Here they are, high school students, even seniors, getting ready to go to college, and they're still putting worldly things above Christ, finding their identity in worldly things rather than Christ. And you just kind of smack your head, and you go, what's going on? But then somebody like Joyce, is Joyce here today? I haven't seen Joyce. There's a lot of people out today. Joyce prays a prayer that was like, oh, thank you, Lord, where she's like, no, no, we find our identity in you, Jesus. We have our worth because you are worthy. Um, just an amazing prayer. And so some people are getting it. We get it when we get it, right? End of round two. Um, we get it when we get it. We understand when we understand. You know, Christ takes us on our journey individually and at our pace. I think Christ was the first homeschooler, right? He took everybody at their own individual pace. So by chapter 18, the disciples, they should have understood this. They didn't. And you kind of want to ask the question, really? I mean, really? I mean, think about what they've experienced. If you kind of leaf through your Bible, how many of you actually still have a Bible like a Bible Bible. I'm just curious. Hold your hand up if you've got one of those paper-looking things. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, all right. So anyways, if you still have a Bible Bible, leaf through the subheadings and just look what they had just experienced. And for them to be even discussing this is mind-boggling me. Can anyone say they know God when their mind is constantly reflecting on their own greatness or lack thereof? Ask this of yourselves. Can you truly say, I know God, when all of your time is spent on thinking about your own greatness, your own position in the world, your own reputation? Can you say you've met God? Have you really met God? Think about what they've just experienced. The idolatry of self is so strong. They were there. Listen, they had just experienced the Mount of Transfiguration. At least Peter, James, and John had, right? And I'm sure when they came down, they shared with the apostles, we just met Moses and Elijah up there. Jesus changed into this blinding white thing. It was amazing. And you know, they must have just came down shaking with excitement. He comes down the hill. There's the demon-possessed lad. Uh, the disciples tried to cast him out. They couldn't. Jesus cast them out. The disciples come to him and say, hey, why couldn't we do that? He says, you have very little faith. Your focus still isn't on the right things, obviously. In fact, even as the story transitions into chapter 18, uh, they come into Capernaum, they are expected to pay taxes, and Jesus makes some statements about that, and very wise teaching, but then he says, well, we, we want to honor them. You know, Peter, go catch a fish, look in his mouth, pull out the coin, and give it to the tax collector. How amazing is that? Here they are in this presence of miracle after miracle, amazement after amazement, and yet they're talking about how great they are and the positions they're going to find in the kingdom. Yeah, they did have little faith. Guys, you and I need to do the work of replacing our greatness with his. And it's work. If you look at how strong the pole is, after all of this, for them to still be thinking about themselves, about their own glory, about their own qualifications for positions of honor, it's ridiculous. It's, it's mind-boggling. But if you're honest, you know you wrestle with the same thing, don't you? You know, you, you come up every morning with this idea of all the things you have to do, all the things you have to accomplish, all the people you have to please. To be able to set all that aside and focus on God's glory is difficult. It has to be done. That's why we need to worship every morning. 
We need to be able to go on our knees before God and do that hard work of knocking, asking, and seeking. And when I say knocking, asking, seeking, I mean, it can't be this timid little, oh, I'm going to sit here and quietly. You've got to thrust yourself into worship. You've got to move yourself out of your own worship of self. It's got to be a deliberate killing of self, of destroying of that idol and lifting up the great and glorious things of God. It has to be that. It can't be this timid little asking, knocking, and seeking. You can't walk up to the door and expect to be going into the kingdom of God by you're entering into the kingdom of God. It's got to be a pounding. It's got to be, I want in. It's got to be that kind of passion. It's got to be that kind of enthusiasm. You can't just keep going, I have this routine. I don't want to upset the routine. Your routine should be upset every single morning by the presence of Christ. Because that's what he does. He upsets us. He overturns the peacefulness. He didn't call you into this peace, placid, mild lifestyle. He calls you into an everyday encounter with him. And it starts with deposing yourself and setting him in his proper place. God Almighty. So the first point, receiving Jesus begins by replacing your greatness with his. Because you know if you don't, you're never even going to see the children he's about to talk about. It's all about identifying. This whole passage is about Christ trying to get his disciples to not only identify with himself, but to identify with everybody else instead of setting themselves apart. Likewise, we will never notice the dependent until we become dependent. See, what do you mean? Well, if you're self-sufficient, you tend to think, why isn't everybody else taking care of their stuff? Why am I always cleaning up everybody else's things? I'm dependent, I'm independent, I'm taking care of my things. But until you learn to become dependent on Christ, and you realize that life isn't about this neat, orderly progression from day one to day two to day three in your plan by your organization, that it really is this wild roller coaster ride where you step on with Christ and you allow him to take you where he wants to take you and you're completely dependent on him. It's not until then that you start seeing those who are by definition dependent, meaning children. So receiving Jesus means becoming dependent on God. Look at the, the brilliance here as it starts in verse two. I love what Jesus does with illustrations. I mean, talk about a master teacher. I mean, really, a master teacher. The idea that he's going to take a child, and even in the taking of the child from the crowd, he's illustrating exactly what he's talking about. He's trying to show them that their dependence needs to be like that of a child, who, if you were standing in the crowd, for instance, I could probably go up to any of the youth right now, maybe some of the nicer ones, and say, hey, can I come up here and use you as an example? And most of them would probably say, yeah because of their position in society, their position as young people. Children even more so, right? I mean, just, that's their, their character. So listen to what he says here, verse two. Follow along, he says, and calling to him a child. Now, he didn't just call him. He probably did both, and that's why Mark and Luke say, taking a child from the crowd. He probably went and took them and was speaking to them as he was doing so. He says, taking this child from the crowd, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
There's two actions that you and I have to kind of hone in around right here, right? Uh, we have to understand what this turning part means, and we have to understand what becoming humble like a child means. And there's lots of strange uh, teachings on that. I had a really difficult time sorting through the different commentaries on this. But before we can understand this, we understand the, con- the context. Right in verse 3 there. This verse is loaded, Right? It starts off with two powerful phrases and ends with a scary phrase. In fact, if you're not actually a little intimidated when you read that verse, you're not reading well. Listen to how verse 3 ends. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That should make your ears perk up. It's like, what, what? I have to do what? So let me poke this out really quick. First of all, the first word, truly. Uh, we tend to skip over that because it's so familiar. Maybe you already know this, and you know if you haven't, but I'm a youth pastor, so I'm always pointing out the obvious. Um, the idea of truly um, is the word amen that we translate, right? Uh, in the Greek, it's come out, pronounced amen. But anyways, this word that's transliterated from the Hebrew to the Greek, by transliterated, I mean it's a word from the Hebrew that made it into the Greek, later translated into Latin, and later translated into all kinds of languages. It's an extraordinary word. It's one of those, what you call, uh, kind of a universal word for most languages. In fact, some have even called it the best-known word in human speech. <coughs> the word is directly related, in fact, almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe, amen, or faithful. Thus, it came to mean sure or truly, an expression of absolute trust and confidence. Did you know that's what you meant when you said Amen. Amen. <laughs> So I want you to think this through really quick here. Uh, The congregation of the Jews, when they would hear a speaker speak or a prayer was prayed or a scripture was read, they would respond with amen. And it it, it meant for them, I not only agree with what you're saying, I acquire it. I take it onto myself. It is what I am too. It's a substance transfer when they utter that word amen. So when you would hear the word amen, say at the end of a message, it would mean sort of like, so be it. I'm all in. I'm in for this. I'm following this. I agree with this with all my heart. This is who I am too. When you hear it used at the beginning of a teaching, like Jesus is using it here, it takes on the word believe faithfully. Are you catching this? Jesus starts by saying, believe this faithfully. So as he moves into this passage and this calling to become like children, he wants you to believe it faithfully. Secondly, now the second part of this is just that he identifies, says, I say this to you. Now we know who Jesus is. So when he says, I say this to you, he may as well be saying, I, your Lord and Master, your Creator and Savior, your brother and King, now proclaim to you something that you must believe faithfully and then lastly he ends it with or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven this is heavy i don't know how many times you've read this you know maybe you've gotten used to reading it and you kind of skirt past this but this is something you need to stop and ask yourself what am i supposed to believe and not just mentally but faithfully which means i act upon it I acquire it. It is who I am. Now, just a little side note here in interpretation. Whenever you hear Jesus talking about, 
or you will never enter the kingdom of God, or when you hear him say things like uh, not entering the kingdom of God, or uh, you can never be forgiven, things like that, it's always going to revolve around a salvation issue, meaning a rejection of the gospel. And that's really what he's getting to here. The crux of what he's trying to say is this idea of repentance, turning to God as you actually are children of God. So therefore, the first action, this idea of turning, why is Jesus saying it this way? Well, he's really talking about repentance. The word repentance means to do a U-turn, or you will never enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you've got to receive the gospel. You've got to receive it as a child would receive it. Hopefully, most of us have. Now, I like to picture this. I picture this so many different ways, this word repentance, because it's something that we just we kind of brush over. It's a, you know, one of those words that are key to our faith. And the more you think about it, the more you apply it to your life, the more you start seeing its effects in your life. It is a U-turn. Uh, probably the best example I've heard uh, was the idea that when you get pulled over by a police officer at night. Anybody been pulled over by a police officer at night? Come on, it's church. Be honest. Oh, testify. No, okay. So we got one. Seriously, no one else has been pulled over by a police officer at night? Because I never have. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> when you get pulled over a police officer at night, they have these lights right? They have this, these lights that go on you, and it's intimidating, because all of a sudden, you're being pulled over, right? And you see the flashing lights, and you get over, but then they pull up behind you, and it's like, click, 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 and all these lights are on you, and you're like, you can see your ribs, you know, as it's shining through your car and through your body. It's so bright, and <coughs> this idea of repentance is so powerful here. You actually have the authority of the law coming up behind you, just like God comes up behind the sinner, right, when he's calling him to repentance. And the law is now standing full force behind you, and the light is shining through you. And you, so you reach over in your glove box, at least I do. I don't know, do you guys, like, take those little slips of paper for your registration, you keep stacking them up? Are you supposed to throw away the old ones? Because I never do. I just kind of keep adding to the little sack there. And so then, you know, of course, the kids have been in there, so i got to find which ones this year. And I, but as soon as I take it out of the light and put it in front of myself, there's nothing but shadow. This is the weirdest thing. And that's the way it works, right? Because here you are walking through life. You are about your greatness. You're about your things. And you're kind of stumbling, actually, through all this process, hoping for the best, because the light of God is behind you. You can't really see where you're going. Your own shadow is tripping you up. And as soon as you feel the presence of God, as soon as the law of God comes upon you, and that call to repent hits you, and you actually turn around, and you see God in all of his glory, there's this falling down. There's this uh, incapacitation that takes place. You can't really see anything but light. The whole world is turned around from darkness to light. And the repentance is so severe that it is like starting life over again. You are a new creation in Christ, like a child being born again. It's just like coming out of the womb. The lights, the sounds, everything's new, everything's different. At least that's how it was for me. Of course, I came to Christ a little later in life. I was in my 20s, so it was quite shocking and quite disturbing. Um, but this idea of repentance, it has two actions in one. It's a forsaking of the old. It's a dying to self, and it's a returning or a turning to God where you're receiving this new life and this new relationship all at once. So the second action that we're called to here is really an illustration of the first action that Christ gives us in uh, verse three there. He says, actually, <coughs> it's a second action in that it brings about this newness of life in a way that you and I can understand it because we've all experienced being a child and we all see children all the time. 
This is, this is probably the most clear statement you can make. Do the disciples get it? No. <laughs> you keep reading and they, they still don't get it. But again, for us who can stop long enough now because it's written down and to pour over this and to meditate on this and to really fast and pray over this and to ask God's counsel from our brothers and sisters on this, we can learn what it means to walk in the humility of children. And hopefully this will kind of kickstart something for you as you begin to contemplate. Anyways, he had Anthony Hopkins in it. He was the old Zorro, and he was getting a new Zorro to replace him because he was old. He'd been in prison a very long time, and he'd finally gotten out, and his old enemy, who had put him in prison for a very long time, had come back to Spain. What was it, California? Oh, California. It was California. And um, he basically is devising a plan how to get into the bad guy's house with this new Zorro. He teaches the new Zorro how to act like a lord and act all, you know, kind of pompous and kind of frilly. And uh, he himself just ties his hair back and puts thin rimmed glasses on and says, okay, let's go. He says, isn't he going to recognize you? He goes, he'll never look at me. He says, well, what do you mean? He sees him, the, the enemy, the bad guy, sees himself as a true nobility. He will never look at a servant in the face. Children, what's your attitudes towards them? Do you have any preconceived assumptions about them? I think, and, uh, I think it's hard not to with as much... Uh, data and information is being thrown at us about how to for that. The idea that God Almighty, who knows you at your utter depths, he knows your every lie, he knows your every betrayal, he knows your every, every, every single one of your failings, he knows the ones you're going to do in the future, he knows you to your very bottom, and yet he loves you to the highest height of sacrifice. He's demonstrated his love for you to the uttermost extremes. And you and I get to live in this glorious tension, in this glorious love where you are completely safe to make whatever mistake you need to make or feel you have to make or you do make, to blow it anyway because you know he loves you unconditionally. And yet, you can also be completely humble because you know that his love for you wasn't something you earned or deserve, it's something he bestowed upon you. And in that state of being, there's great humility. Who can think about their own greatness when God has shown us so much greatness? Let his relationship with you inspire you. When you read this verse, whoever receives uh, one such child in my name receives me. As we move into this next emphasis, you have the opportunity to receive Christ anew by rethinking and reevaluating the way you look at children. And I hope you will listen well to our speaker next week. Hope you will listen well to the testimony of Marcus and those who others who are going to stand up and speak. Hope you will listen well to Pastor Harrison's message of what Scripture has to say about this. Because you and I have only this life to invest. We only have two places really to start with, and I'll, I'll leave it with this since I'm going along. Basically, what is your attitude towards children? It, it needs to be revamped, probably needs to be revamped all, all the time, every year. Uh, we tend to think in categories, sadly, and because of that, we tend to think of children as different creatures. Do you see them the way you might see a puppy or some other adorable creature? You know, it's not gonna invest a lot of time, but you, know, you can pet it and get a good smile out of it, right? Maybe you see them uh, with unfavorable light. You know, maybe you're the victim of some uh, very bad stereotypes about children. Maybe those need to be addressed. Or maybe you see them the way Christ sees you, which is what needs to take place, as immoral, immortal beings uh, with immense worth, worthy of love 
rescuing and dying for. Maybe that's how you see them. The second thing you need to look at to reevaluate is how are you spending your life? What long-term commitments are you pouring your life into? Those two, in this emphasis, is what really matters. Now, God may not be calling you to orphan care, but if he is, and you're so distracted by the other things you're pouring your life into, you may not even hear it. And you're missing the most glorious opportunity ever offered to you. Almost as glorious as your salvation because in obeying Christ, your salvation becomes alive, not only in you, but for everyone else around you. They see God in you, walking, ministering, speaking, preaching, teaching, loving, dying for others. So I'd encourage you, please, don't just move through this as another unit, uh, like you're downloading information. This is not a class. This is a call to life. It's about receiving Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you our lives because you are worthy. You've shown us how, Jesus, by dying on the cross and giving your life for us. And we'd ask, God, that you'd help us to know how best, how you've equipped us, how you've uniquely crafted us to lay down our lives for others. So we ask and call upon your blessing and ask that you would anoint our service of you. For we want the world to know you. We want them to see you living and moving among your people. We ask all this and we claim it as our right as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to take our offering, so if you're ready for the ushers to come by.